Hello, everyone, and welcome to our second difficult discussion. I am Dr. Megan Miller, and tonight we are talking about toilet training. As our discussion topic, I am pleased to welcome Alexandra Vassar and Michael Crosby for tonight's discussion. The purpose of difficult discussions is to bring together people with different perspectives and different identities to share their perspectives on a topic that is typically considered taboo, um, seen as controversial and or is well accepted, but maybe should involve more critical analysis and discussion. So the format for these events will be as follows. Mostly for, mostly for the sake of time, none of the panelists will directly respond to anything the other panelists say, except when we get to part three. In part one, each person will briefly share any identities they are comfortable sharing and indicate why they wanted to discuss this topic. In part two, each person will provide about a five to 10 minute explanation of their history and perspectives with the topic. In part three, each panelist will briefly reflect on one thing said by one of the other panelists to share an aha moment or something they hadn't considered before. And in part four, each panelist will share a closing thought about the topic. This might be an action item, a key point they want listeners to carry with them, etc. It also is important to note that the views and opinions expressed within this difficult discussions video are those of each individual person and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of any affiliated company or professional organization. We wanna thank everyone who's joining us live for this discussion. Please remember that each of the individuals sharing within this discussion are sharing their own personal stories and perspectives. And we expect everyone to be treated with respect, empathy, compassion, and civility. We will do our best to monitor the chat and anyone who is engaging in a manner that is not respectful of the discussion, that does not demonstrate a commitment to listening to learn sharing perspectives and or is focused on making people wrong will be removed from the chat. So thank you, Alexandra and Michael for joining me tonight for this difficult discussion. How are you both doing today? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Good. Wow. <laughs> so I'm gonna do our first uh, question and um, basically just kind of explain why we're here tonight. So um, why this topic is our first question. So why toilet training? And I'll just share a little bit about my identities. And again, whatever anyone's comfortable sharing is fine. I'm a cisgender white woman. I'm neurotypical, heterosexual. I'm a mother of a four and a half year old and I've been a behavior analyst for quite some time. For me, this topic was important to discuss in the difficult discussion series because it's a common skill that is targeted in ABA intervention programs. And I have my own history of seeing people improperly design toileting interventions that led to aversive experiences for clients. More recently, I have also heard concerns from folks in the neurodiversity movement that brought up some of um, just some concerns that I hadn't thought about before about some of the things that I, I never really saw. I thought they were harmless. So I think it's important for others to hear about and start thinking about those things as well. Alexandra or Michael, who would like to just go first and why we're talking about this? Michael? <laughs> I'm, a, I'm autistic. I come from an autistic family. My father's autistic. I have five autistic kids, an autistic wife. 
I'm a special ed teacher. I'm a leader in the artistic community. I've worked with a lot of parents, a lot of autistics, and uh, toilet training has been something that we've uh, discussed and, and, and worked with a lot. Um, the, the main thing that I've noticed is that most people don't understand about how autistics develop and their developmental readiness and how uh, they're often much more ready intellectually than they are emotionally or physically. Um, so that they can give the appearance that they're more, they're more ready than they are because uh, they can basically overcome the other things with their intellect. Uh, so the, in terms of uh, potty training, that's a, I think that's a, a confusing thing because it makes it appear that because a kid can understand uh, what they're doing and how and what they're supposed to do, that that means they're actually ready to do that. And uh, a lot of times I've found that's not true. Um, one of the, the ways, some of the things that affect this also that are important, I think, are that uh, autistics have a lot of sensory uh, differences, often being very hypersensitive or hyposensitive. And because of that, um, they can have difficulties with uh, toileting for various reasons. Uh, that ties into interoception where they don't really uh, understand how they feel their own bodies and whether they even need to go. I have a daughter who's, I think, nine or 10 now, and uh, she still doesn't seem to be aware of when she needs to go all the time. And so she'll often, uh, seem like she's waiting to the last minute and like have to desperately go. And we have one bathroom with four, four kids and two adults. And so that can be a problem sometimes. Um, I think also that uh, a lot of people don't seem to be comfortable with modeling. Autistics respond really well to modeling. And one of the ways you can model is to show them the bathroom, how the bathroom works, how it's normal to use the bathroom. Um, for me, that involved letting the kids come in and into the bathroom when I was using it and, and talking to them and, and just letting them know, you know, this is what I'm doing and it's just a normal thing they take time out for. Uh, because a lot of kids I've noticed also have a problem. Uh, autistics are often over excited, over involved with the things they're doing. They don't like to take time away from them. So one of the problems with toileting is taking time away from what they're doing to use the toilet. I had a couple of kids who would go to the point of actually sitting on their bottoms to make sure nothing came out so that they didn't have to go anywhere. Um, and I don't think that's very uh, unusual either. Uh, the, the, the other thing I think that a lot of people don't consider carefully enough is uh, medical issues. Uh, autistics often have medical gastrointestinal difficulties which can be related to anxiety and trauma and stress and things like that, or it can be just uh, its own thing. And um, I think that that also needs to be a factor that people consider when they uh, toilet train. And then finally, I think that a lot of times autistics are micromanaged a lot. And uh, I think this is an aspect of ABA that, that um, you want to be controlling them all the time, to be able to teach them all the time, to be able to have them engaged all the time. But for, uh, for human, most human beings, they want to have some autonomy. And trailing is one of the very few things that they can control completely themselves and have that autonomy. And sometimes it becomes a sort of power struggle that they're trying to, to, to retain some, some control over some part of their lives and their body. Um, and, I, and it can be, you know, all these things are complex and they can't all be all interrelated. It can be any number of those in any combination. And uh, I think that uh, 
the way the NBA often also tries to rush to, to get things done in a hurry, try to, you know, rapid toilet training, things like that, can work against an autistic being able to do these things because they need that time. They need the time to process it, they need the time to develop, they need the time to feel comfortable with it in a variety of different ways. That's about Thank it. Thank you, Michael. That was so thorough. Alexandra? Hi, I'm an autistic BCBA a uh, cisgender woman, white, um, I just, me, my husband, and my three cats who are entertaining, but um, that's who I am. Um, I have experience within ABA in the different styles of um, potty training done, and I've talked a lot with other autistics and um, spent a lot of time considering and thinking about, well, why are those methods harmful or how could there be a better way of uh, targeting this? And um, as a recent graduate from the master's program in the last year, still using research from the seventies and our instruction of uh, upcoming or people uh, hoping to be BCPAs um, to teach about the concepts of potty training and that sort of thing. We're still using things done to unwilling participants in uh, institutions around potty training as valid and good um, information. And so that clinically is really, uh, disturbing and, and concerning. And um, so I think it's important that we start to challenge each other to look for better research and to um, refute the things that are still common and still used in our field that really shouldn't be um, for a variety of reasons and looking for more compassionate, um, especially with potty training and in our society, potty toilet, anything is, um, so taboo and it shouldn't be like, um, I still have toilet trouble, a lot of autistic people do and that shouldn't be something somebody should be shamed for or trained out of. It's like, no, get the support you need and um, ensure that your environment is supporting you to like still do the things you wanna do um, and not have to worry about, I'm a bad person because I, couldn't make it to the bathroom in time kind of things. Um, and I've lived overseas in places where if you say, oh, I, if you're trying to be discreet and say my stomach's upset and they'll like ask you 20 questions about the variety of things that could be happening with your stomach and what you mean by that. No shame, no just unsolicited. You were in the bathroom for a long time. I'm gonna ask you 20 questions and then I'm gonna give you your unasked, unsolicited medical advice on what to do about it. And it was very uh, jarring for me and it got me thinking about, well, why, why, why not uh, have that kind of lens where it's not shameful? Um, and so that's kind of part of why I think it's important too. So yeah, hopefully that made sense. Yes, it did. So many great points brought up. Thank you, Alexandra. So our second question is um, basically, you, you both kind of touched on it already, but if you want to dive in deeper on anything around what you brought up or if there's additional things you want to talk about, 
the question is, what is each person's history with toilet training, especially focused around risks and benefits? So I'll share my history first to kind of demonstrate what I think is pretty representative of a lot of behavior analysts. And then um, hopefully we'll all learn some additional things to consider and think about when we hear from Alexandra and Michael. So I'm gonna focus based on my own experiences to highlight the training we typically receive. Um, this isn't representative of all of the concerns I have encountered throughout my career or come up with more recently from talking to others. We did do a whole podcast episode on that. So I'll share the link in the chat if you all want to listen to like two hours of myself and Joe talking more about this, but that's not the point of tonight. So one of the things just kind of going through from my early career before I was in graduate school, when I was working in home as an ABA therapist in Ohio with real little learners, usually around the age of two, pretty much every person, every family that was receiving ABA at the time uh, in Columbus, Ohio, regardless of who their consultant was, did what is called a potty party. And this is a very popular thing that happens um, both within early intervention and you can Google it and find like typical um, neurotypical families doing it too. But there was never any type of assessment or analysis of readiness. It was almost just like, oh, the child just turned two or is about to turn two. And so now it's time to have a potty party. Families were given very clear and strict protocols of what would happen and tons of support was provided with having the whole team take long shifts to support following the plan. But there was little to no discussion about what to do if any sort of um, challenging behavior occurred, if the child wasn't ready, if it was aversive for the child. I was fortunate that for the few families I did these with at that time, none of no issues arose, but I've since encountered um, situations where I've either been supervising someone or um, working with a family and we did have those, you know, various um, aversive aspects of toilet training come up and we had to really think on our toes. And I look back on those times and I'm like, I would have had no clue what to do and this poor child would have uh, suffered from us not knowing or preparing properly. In graduate school, I was trained heavily on the article that Alexandra mentioned, the Fox and Azarin rapid toilet training. There was no discussion around the article being outdated or aspects of the article that may not be appropriate. It was almost the opposite. Um, our professors and supervisors were in awe of how long ago this was created and how they were all proud that like behavior analysis was in the mainstream, but we didn't really go through and dissect the article and talk about what could be inappropriate now and like what issues might arise from using these procedures. Um, we were pretty much instructed to follow the Fox and Azarin rapid toilet training steps with all of our clients. And again, there was little to no analysis or assessment done on readiness or problem solving or being prepared to support the child through the toilet training process. I have seen some benefits during the time that I did toileting, especially in my early career. Almost every client I worked with learned toileting and there weren't any observable side effects at that time. Um, it seemed to be a positive experience, but I, I don't know, I didn't talk to the learners specifically about it. They did readily sit and were excited to learn how to use the toilets, even with the procedures we were using. But I also don't quite remember using positive practice or overcorrection for accidents, which is a big focus in the article. So positive 
practice an overcorrection. If the child has an accident, they're made to like walk to the bathroom and back several times and told this is where you pee. They might have to help clean up the accident and they're both punishment procedures. Uh, there are, have been some disadvantages though. Um, we weren't trained to individually assess the situation. We never had discussions about why certain procedures would be used and what procedures might have been acceptable at the time, but shouldn't be now. And of course, the longer I was in the field, I encountered situations where the procedures were poorly applied and it made it clear the importance of putting thought and effort before initiating toilet training around assessing readiness, um, what potential aversive aspects of toileting could happen to make sure that you're not creating an aversive situation. There, were, um, there are a few things that I've seen in toileting over time that appear to be critical features to success. And I have heard some discussion within the neurodiversity community about some of these aspects potentially not being positive. So I would love to hear from Michael and Alexandra at, when we do our part three, any thoughts on these things. So um, when I did this both with my son and with pretty much every client I've ever had, the uh, not wearing diapers seemed to be really important to get independent toileting to occur. Uh, for my own son, if he had a diaper and no underwear, he would just consistently go in his diaper. But I could see where um, modifications would potentially need to be made for that, especially with like different physiological or medical concerns. Uh, teaching the learner how to recognize if they're wet or dry and reinforcing staying dry done in a way that's humane and positive, not aversive. And, under and then of course, understanding why the learner isn't using the toilet. A lot of times people just, again, blindly apply the same procedure instead of really looking at, is it developmental? Is this the age where the child should be learning? Are they developmentally ready to be taught how to toilet? Um, was there some training in their past and they find it aversive or even without training in their past? Is there aspects of toileting that they find aversive? Are there skill deficits around recognizing bodily functions? Are there medical concerns? I, I don't see people in our field really being trained on trying to figure out that why it's just this automatic, oh, they need a toilet program. Here's rapid toilet training. And then I'm almost done. Um, the concerns about the actual research base have always been present for me as well and how we're trained versus what actually exists. So as Alexandra mentioned, the early original study was published in 1971. We're closing in on that being almost 50 years ago. And in that time, four additional studies were published, all in the 70s, showing the effectiveness of the procedures with both typically developing children and children with disabilities. But it wasn't effective for all of the children. And, and that's like the base, these studies from the 70s. Um, there is additional research in our field, but a, a recent literature review from 2020 identified 23 studies between 2009 and 2020 and concluded in conclusion, all of the toilet training programs and the studies included the current study are derivatives and modified versions of the original Azarin and Fox study of 1971. Furthermore, no standard toileting programs of fixed components for individuals with developmental disabilities have existed ever since. With respect to this issue, it can be concluded that toilet training programs, packages, or protocols are built according to researchers' preferences and participants' characteristics. As such, there is still no agreement on a common toileting program in the literature. Therefore, further studies are needed to teach toilet training skills to individuals with developmental disabilities. 
Most concerning, the literature review highlighted that zero of the 23 studies that were included did any sort of assessment of preference around the procedures used with the actual learners. There was no checking in with the learners to see what they thought of the procedures being used to teach toileting. Um, and there was a, only a small set of studies that even assessed the acceptability of the procedures with the parents or the teachers. Um, I'm gonna close with two examples of toileting and this is part of why this is such a hot topic for me. The worst example that really shows what can happen when people are blindly applying procedures without consideration for the learner. I had a client who was toilet training at school and it was an ABA based school. And I found out the school kept him in a bathroom stall the entire school day, even to eat lunch because he hadn't peed yet. He hadn't voided in the toilet. And their plan as written on paper was that he needed to stay in the stall until he peed. Like zero common sense and talk about an aversive situation for that poor child. Um, so those are the types of things that cannot be happening in our field or any field for that reason, or for that matter. Um, and this is where I think we really need to do better. Uh, I will close with a better example. We um, also had a family a while ago who had a young adult that was told he would need diapers for the rest of his life. And he didn't particularly seem to care for wearing diapers, but he also had never been taught how to like use the toilet or void anywhere other than his diapers. And uh, we did an individualized assessment. We had an amazing behavior analyst that worked with him and the family. And within a few months, he had an individualized plan in place that focused on supporting his skill sets. And he didn't need diapers and he preferred to use the toilet. So I don't want it to sound like there's no good <laughs> that can come from toileting and behavior analysis, but we do need to do a much better job at individualizing things and really taking into consideration the thoughts that I brought up and of course whatever Alexandra and Michael and others will share with us um, in our field in the foreseeable future. So that was a lot. Sorry, this is why I have to write my notes out. <laughs> um, Michael or Alexandra, who wants to go next to share your concerns with toileting? Why don't you go, Alexandra? Okay, thanks for the prompt. <laughs> That's helpful. <laughs> um, I will always happily go last. Um, in anything, pretty much. Well, like this. Last time. But uh, <laughs> it's, uh, I think, my, the same thing that uh, Megan was talking about, my primary experience enacting um, potty training with clients or what I was originally trained in was the potty party. And the article I think that I was given was a um, article modifying the Fox and Asrum study. And then a year or two later or whenever it was, um, is when I had to read the Fox and Asrum study in school um, to get my master's. And um, I was like, oh, I recognize this. And the only discussion really about the quality of the article was, eh, it uses outdated terms, but everything else is good. Like if you change the language, it's perfect um, today. and that was pretty much the um, only critique whatsoever, which isn't really a critique um, present in the course about that article. Um, so the potty parties that we did, it didn't seem to be benefiting. Uh, I've only seen that with one client um, and 
parents requested that it stop because it was clearly not benefiting the client. Um, and I had heard uh, of other clients at that clinic before I began working there um, that had been successfully more or less potty trained using that method, um, except I knew the clients that they were talking about and they still had struggles with the bathroom. So I was wondering then at the, like at the time, like if it was successful, why is this still happening? Like, it, it doesn't seem like it was really that successful. It just got them out of diapers into underwear. Um, and I got the sense that a lot of it had to do with um, convenience or preference of adults around the kids. Um, not to do with actually supporting um, those particular kids being successful. Um, and I had other clients that um, did other methods of potty training that are essentially the same thing, except you don't stay in the bathroom the whole time. You go every like five minutes and sit for five minutes and then you leave. And then as accidents happen less, you have longer gaps between sitting on the toilet um, kind of situation. Um, uh, looking at the paper. So I guess the benefits from my view of these types of toilet trainings that I've witnessed are purely for that of the adults or the parents not wanting to do diaper changes, not wanting to have the stigma of my five, six-year-old is still in diapers and I'm a bad parent because of it. Um, and none of it did take into account developmental readiness. It was just there behind their neurotypical peers. Therefore, we need to fix that um, kind of process of deciding whether or not to potty train their, the decision was, are they two or older? And the urgency of doing such a potty training um, increased the older a client was when starting services. Um, and I, so, uh, sorry, I'm scattered at the moment. Um, So another aspect of that, when you're looking at the Fox and Asrin study and how um, harmful the language is, none of it is client-centered. None of it is centered on the developmental readiness of the person. None of it is focused on longevity. It's all on shame around the bathroom, shame around anything bodily. Um, and not presuming competence of our clients. So I, I'm thinking back to these situations and wondering and knowing that like my clients knew what was happening and because they weren't able to say stop it with those words and in calm language, they didn't have the ability or their ability to be heard and respected was removed. And one of our requirements is to maintain client dignity, but this procedure is not dignifying at all. Just because nobody else is in the room and we 
maintain privacy doesn't mean that we're ensuring somebody's dignity around toileting. Um, shameful or like shaming it or um, overcorrection or um, any of these types of things attached with the traditional ABA article um, for toilet training um, don't increase or add any dignity whatsoever. It's all about stripping dignity of like, no, you don't get to have the autonomy to be comfortable doing something that your body has to do every day. Um, and I've seen clients who've been through procedures like that and are maybe in teens or that um, and are still not successfully potty trained because there's been so much shame attached to it that um, the bathroom has become an extremely aversive place. And so in trying to speed up the developmental process, there's been a like kind of reversal effect of, nope, I'm not gonna do that. Like I don't want to, and you can't make me kind of thing um, happening. Um, and it, it's concerning. I would I would love to see better research, neurodivergent affirming research that asks people that struggle with toileting, kids, adults, whoever, and gets their feedback on what would be supportive, what and go at their pace, like studies to show. Um, there's not a lot of studies out there, none at all really within the ABA that talk about the, how autistics or neurodivergent people develop. Uh, and I think, Michael, you're going to touch on this later, um, or that's what I got uh, a sense of uh, in what you like to talk about. But there should be studies, and I think ABA is capable being data-driven to take data over time as a client develops and show how to recognize the signs of developmental readiness or that type of thing. Something that honors their process and honors their, like gives dignity and like you're a human, you develop at your own pace and we're here to support you and provide accommodations. And when you're ready, you'll tell us and like have a study that shows that works. Um, it's the studies that I see or about toilet training or anything else, they're all about forcing developmental standards that don't apply to autistic people um, as if they have to apply to autistic people. Um, so I would love to see studies that prove that, you no, know, when left not to their own device, our own devices, because I mean, kids do need support in developing. Uh, that's what kid, like kids, um, but proof showing and accepted within the ABA community to stop doing these practices to that it's okay to look at this research and say they'll be just fine if we just provide support and we don't force um, is what I would like to see happen. I think that's what I've got. Yep, I think <laughs> that's I'm good. so much. Um, amazing. Thank you, Alexandra. Michael? All right. Well, first of all, um, I think that a lot of the research has been done or the little of research has been done 
um, is has been done at or around autistics rather than with them. And um, the fact that it's so old also affects how the how how we understand it because the understanding of autism and autistic has changed so much in that time. And in fact, it's been rapidly changing just in the last ten years. And my experience is a lot of people aren't even up to date with the last ten years. Um, so to be using stuff that's so long ago that we didn't even define autism even remotely the same way doesn't really make sense. Um, because of that, I think that it, it's important that we put less emphasis on the research until we have some now and uh, put more emphasis on what we can get out of um, what the, the, the incredible rich resource we have now with autistics themselves and um, how hard that the autistics have been working on understanding uh, ourselves and each other. Um, so uh, in the meantime, I think that uh, there is more research being done, which is including autistic, thinking about autistics from their point of view. And I think that will eventually catch up. And as Alexander said, there's no reason why uh, ABA can be part of that as well. Um, the other thing is that uh, I think, you know, I gave an overview of some of the problems that, that, uh, that I've seen and why this is an important subject to me. You know, things like hormonal readiness, uh, trauma, anxiety, and fear, sensory issues, uh, interoception, medical issues. Um, and the, the fact is that every autistic is so different from every other one, and just the way every individual, every other, any individual is different from each other. Um, that the idea of trying to have a sort of a, a general thing that would work across the board doesn't really make sense either to me. Uh, oh, my screen froze. Can you still hear me? Yep. Okay. <laughs> um, because uh, there are so many different factors that you have to, to uh, evaluate and take into account. Um, the, uh, one of them, for instance, is that uh, is, to me, I found that even with any kid who's 12 or 20, uh, backsliding is, is a big issue. Uh, if there's some sort of uh, stressful event, uh, the kids will often backslide. And, uh, and there's really no way to avoid that. You know, there's no way to avoid stressful events because you can't predict them. You don't know what'll be stressful to the kid. So, so the idea that you have this uh, rapid uh, toilet training uh, or anything that will take time, take uh, take uh, will happen over time, over a short amount of time, doesn't really make sense to me, they're, they're, especially in the kind of environment we're in now, um, you know, with the COVID and uh, um, all the, the stress of uh, the parents are having, that's all going to come out in the kid also. Um, and my experience has been that with, with backsliding and with, and with, uh, with toilet training in, in general, if you're just consistent with the training, and you, you account for things like um, lapses or backsliding, and you just consistently do it, eventually they'll get it um, when they're ready and when they're able. Now, I don't think there are many kids who don't want to do this. They don't want to make, they, they want to make their parents happy. They want to have more comfort. They want to have more control of their lives. They want to have more predictability. And all those things um, are, are uh, motivated them to, to do it as, as well and as efficiently as they can. Um, and I think we need to take that into account uh, when we when we uh, interact with them. Uh, so uh, one of the other things is presuming competence is a, is a big thing in the, in the in the autism and autistic world now. 
um, you know, assuming that kids can't do it, uh, can't do things, and being able to trust that they're doing the best that they can and to, to enable them to do the best they can, I think is very important. And all of these ideas about um, trying to generalize it, trying to make it happen quickly, trying to make it convenient for the parents or convenient for the therapist even, uh, work against that, work against the, the, the natural development of, the, of our kid. Uh, now, um, I can see how things like modeling can be difficult for many people. There are ways to model it, which uh, you can do, which aren't as uh, squeamish, like uh, going through the motions, practicing the motions of it, or uh, reading about it. There are a number of good books uh, with picture books and different ages that you can use and uh, things like that. But I, I think for autistic, uh, especially modeling and, and having those experiences uh, is very much more powerful than just talking about it or just uh, setting expectations that they, they want to go along with. Because uh, I, my experience is a lot of autistics want to make people happy. And so that, you know, for instance, with a potty party or something like that, you're, you're, what you're using is um, social uh, pressure as well as um, uh, rewarding them for to thinking about it, thinking about it positively and trying to create positive thoughts around it. But all these things aren't going to to create uh, uh, or or to uh, to do anything about all these other issues that they may be having that, that need to be looked into. Um, so uh, for me, I don't see many benefits from the way things have been done in the past, uh, the, except as uh, Alexander pointed out, maybe it makes uh, the adults feel more comfortable. It makes adults feel like they have more control. Over but I think that with um, autistics, the thing is we need to be raising them to feel they have control over the world, to feel they understand it, to feel they have some way of uh, 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 predicting it, some way of interacting with it in, in friendly ways. And the fact is that most of us, most autistics almost never feel that way in our lives. We're constantly getting messages from everyone around us and everything around us. We aren't right, we aren't, good, we aren't accepted, we aren't preferable, we aren't doing things the right way. Uh, and all of that starts when we're little kids. And all that starts around the time of potty training. And all of that stuff has an impact on how we think and feel when we get older. Um, I think that in, in terms of long range goals, I think that you'll find that the, the better that you set us up when we're young like that, the better our outcomes are going to be, the better we're going to feel about it when we're older. But to, to find that, you have to follow us over that time and see what happens to us and see how our feelings are, how our abilities to cope are, how, how successful we feel we are, and things like that. And I think the ABA is has a big blank spot in that, in, that, in, in understanding that and, and, uh, and, and even applying that in any form. Um, that's about all I have to say. Thank you, Michael. We do have a few comments coming in from Facebook. Mm -hmm. I'm going to do our part three question and then I'll pull in, if we have time, some of the questions and thoughts from Facebook. 
um, because part three, I think should be relatively fast. And I do appreciate both Alexander and Michael, you sharing your perspectives and thoughts. It's giving us a lot to hopefully focus on and uh, move forward with. So part three is what is something that was said by one of the panelists just now that you were reflecting on? Um, I can go first, but Alexander or Michael, if either one of you prefer to go first, feel free to let me know. Okay, I'll go <laughs> <You're> first then. <laughs> All right, so for me, I think, um, I think actually both of you really touched on this, but it's the idea around the toileting and just bodily functions, the shame piece being involved. I have always been concerned about the fact that the rapid toilet training includes punishment and a lot of toilet training procedures I've seen focus on incorporating overcorrection or positive practice, but I'd never taken it that next step of considering just in general, how our society does put a lot of shame around the, this area with toileting and, and what you said, especially Alexandra about, you know, if an adult, you know, happens to have some type of accident, like it's not that big of a deal. Why does, why do people have to make it shameful? So that's given me a lot to think about and hopefully new conversations to have with families to help guide things and make sure we're really setting the learner up for success and that they're ready for this process. And, um, I think in the past, I wouldn't have had that information to carry with me. And I really appreciate both of you touching on that. I love everything you both said, but that was like the big thing that stuck out for me. Um, so Alexander or Michael, did either of you have any aha moments or reflections that you wanted to share? Well, I wasn't um, completely aware of just how outdated this stuff was. Um, and I wasn't really, I didn't really understand the, the the whole um, idea of party parties or, or how they worked or anything like that. I, I'm sort of, you know, I'm sort of in my own bubble in that sense that I've avoided the worst of it because as an autistic, it's very difficult to to stay emotionally healthy and and and, and be aware of just how bad things are. Um, so for me, um, just the, the realization that this stuff really is so so archaic. Uh, this, this yep. Alexandra? I think for me, A, I didn't realize that every, like, or all of the studies that followed up on it weren't really any update, just slight modifications. So that was, uh, it takes me a while to get through journal articles, like a long time. So that was shocking. Not shocking, actually, but like confirmation of, okay. Um, and the other thing was um, commonly parents will ask, well, if not potty training now, because that's what I expected when I had kids at this, this age, we would be doing this. What do we do? Um, I And modeling is an ABA thing or it's something we do. I hadn't really brought that context into how to advocate or um, help families understand better. Um, just the idea of like modeling non-shameful um, behavior around toileting or anything body related. Um, I hadn't put that language to it um, before and I really like that. Um, 
I'm going to chew on that for a while. Thanks, Alexandra. So we do have a few minutes before we each just say like our closing thoughts. So I wanted to uh, tell you all about some of the stuff that's happening in the chat. There was a mention, and I would love to hear what thoughts you have on this. Many families feel pressured to begin potty training so that their child will be accepted into a daycare or a school. My initial thought is, well, we just need to normalize this and get the shame gone, like Alexandra said. But in the meantime, um, do either of you have input on that? And Michael, I'm especially interested because you said you're a special education teacher and you have children. I think you said you homeschool, but um, you know, does anyone have insight on how you would navigate that or suggestions of input to give to the families? So, I mean, from my point of view, I'd question how good that school is because I'm able to adapt to the needs of the, of the student. Um, you, that would be one of one red flag of how many others or others there are that would tell me maybe that's not an appropriate school for them anyway. Why would I want my kid um, if they're not if they're not thinking about what my kid needs above their own needs? Uh, I know that that's difficult to bring the public school system, but you have to balance that against what what negative effect that's going to have on the kid if you push them too much if you uh, if you put them in a, in a situation which is clearly going to damage them uh, and and I know that that's very serious and, and uh, uh, difficult thing to do uh, to to make those kind of decisions but you know I gave up I gave up a, a lot of my life to make sure my kid had the right had a good a good start because I felt that that was more important than me having a, a good end. I mean, I'm, I'm semi-retired now, so <laughs> it's not as much of a big deal as the younger things. Thank you, Michael. Alexandra, do you have anything to add? I think um, there people say, well, why aren't you like picking on like the whole education system and just picking on ABA? I, I hate the public education system. I hate most of the education system to begin with and think that how it's set up and it's not accommodating in the ableism and just the cookie cutterness of the education system in general is, a, is problematic. Um, so I see that issue. I realize that not every family or a lot of families can't do homeschool for whatever reason. And that sometimes compromises are needed. Um, and then my question comes, like if the kid is not developmentally or the person is not developmentally ready to potty train, is there a way to talk with the school and get accommodations? Um, and like what Michael was saying, if they're not willing to do anything other than they're in regular underwear and use the bathroom by themselves, then Again, and getting called every day when they when they have an accident. That's yeah. what ends up happening. Um, and my question is then, like, okay, well, why not instead of forcing somebody to potty train, we look at like pull-ups or that type of thing, and like focusing on not like that they're going to the bathroom on the toilet, but that they can help themselves do that kind of thing, or maybe pull-ups are more amenable to the school and they're willing to accommodate that way. Um, getting creative with, okay, what's a solution that I'm not forcing 
a person to do something they're not developmentally ready for, um, but we're able to have accommodations in writing and follow through and that sort of thing um, and really advocating and like if you can find local advocates to help with discussing with the schools. I don't know advocates everywhere, but I've heard of people being able to bring in advocates for IEPs or that sort of thing. Um, and I imagine that there, we need to have a better network and way of like, you need an advocate, this is the person to go to, like everybody knows it kind of thing. Um, but looking for that information and finding um, and advocating for your kids to have those accommodations and teach them the model for them how to get their needs and accommodations met. Um, and you and parents doing that to regulate with their kids and help get those needs met from early on will teach them my accommodations are like I am worth being accommodated. Um, and I think that sets the tone really positively for their life overall. Um, that's kind of my thoughts. I know it's not a complete answer, um, but very, very helpful. And I love that point about the advocating now, like early on shows them how to advocate for life. I think as well with what we've all kind of been talking about with the developmental piece, like that's where it is really important. If you're the person helping to come up with interventions on the team that you have enough understanding around what the developmental milestones would be. And, and you're working on those things if the learner is ready for it. So that when the time comes, you can advocate and do all of those things, but you're also still working from a place where it's supportive of the child at whatever space they are. And you can talk to the school or the daycare about that. Like, yes, toileting is a thing you all would like to have happen. Here's these other steps that need to happen first. And we're not going to put our child through an aversive um, experience and create potentially additional problems for them around toileting or their life <laughs> just because you would like them to use the bathroom. Um, so I think that's where our job comes in to know we, as behavior analysts, we're supposed to be the masters at like task analyses and breaking things down to shape and all of that kind of stuff. So if we're not, if, if all we're focused on is that goal of toileting and we don't know all of the pieces that go into it, then we're not going to be very helpful. Um, yeah. uh, Something I want to look up and bookmark is looking up ADA rules within daycares and that sort of thing. And if um, that's an accommodation like required under ADA or something like that you could advocate for um, is just something that I want to go look up now. And fix <laughs> out. But Yes, yeah. that's awesome. And keep us updated. I would hope there's information that you could find on that. Uh, we had a few people sharing, I'm not going to read each of the comments, but um, there were a couple of parents that were agreeing with you, Michael, about each child being different and sharing stories that they have multiple children and their one child might have uh, learned things pretty quickly and then slid back and had to relearn some things or um, didn't, uh, they had issues with pooping or having a bowel movement on the toilet and then they had to work through that. So the idea that, you know, ev every child really is different um, is important to keep in mind as well. Um, I, they just were agreeing with you on that. Um, 
somebody else shared that apparently some daycares charge more if your child is not potty trained. So that's interesting. Um, and then uh, another comment, one thing I do is to first make sure that certain skills have already developed and that the bathroom is paired as a great place to be before the toilet is introduced. Um, I don't overcorrect or scold when accidents happen but I do say we could try again next time and I have them help clean themselves up if it doesn't cause them to become upset. Is there anything I should change or not do? So um, based on that description, do either of you have input on, uh, I guess maybe that feedback of like, oh, you know, you had an accident and then like having them help clean it up if they're okay with that. What are your thoughts on that? I think that's probably the best way to do it. Um, I wouldn't, I think having them clean it up helps because they, that, that makes them understand that it's not just gonna disappear. It's not gonna be something they can get through and it's gone. Um, and I think the more they're involved with it, the more they feel like they're involved with it, the more control they feel like they have over it, and the more they uh, understand it. Um, again, uh, one of the problems with, um, Autistics and, and NTs or allistics is that we see things so differently that just relating our ideas to each other isn't necessarily very effective. But being able to have that experience and, and figure out your own way to handle it uh, in a way that's satisfying for yourself and hopefully other people uh, seems to work much better. And, it's all, and you're also at that point teaching uh, problem solving and uh, self-advocacy and things like that. And you can actually work that into it if you want to. Uh, in very early basic ways. Thanks, Michael. It sounds, just to make sure I'm understanding, it sounds like you're saying as long as you're doing it in a way that's not like shameful, like, yeah. no, you had an act, you know, like it's right. a dog or something. Right. Um, more of just like the natural, like, oh, we have to clean this up. Yeah. It, do you want to help kind of um, interaction is what I'm picturing. Right. Okay, thank you. Alexandra, do you have anything to add? Um, sorry, I found a link for the ADA thing. Um, oh, good. <laughs> it, it, it is in there. So um, they aren't allowed to discriminate on kids or parents with disabilities and have to make reasonable accommodations. Um, so there's that helpful info. Um, I'm going to go skim that question real quick again. Can I just point something out about that, which is that the difficulty is not that it's there, that they have that federal requirement to do that, including is getting them to follow that federal requirement. And that yes. can often take uh, a lawyer to do. So, I mean, that's one reason why we chose not, not to even pursue the school any further, because we didn't have the resources to force them. And then you got to think, well, if you do force them, how well are they going to do it? How, how, mm -hmm. how, how much involvement are they going to, you know, feel, how are they going to feel good about doing it? Because you just forced them to do something. So. Right. I, that is a good point. It's frustrating because it's against the law for them to do that, um, but also it doesn't, if they're going to be that kind of place, then it's not really, that goes back to what you were saying, Michael, with maybe they're not the place for your right. kid to be. Um, but if you don't have a choice, if you're a parent that can't be home for whatever reason or need that, then it, I hope it's helpful uh, in some way. Um, 
no just knowing or like having that knowledge like this action that they're taking is illegal um or against ada um i know that at least when i know that it helps me feel more confident about things of like okay i know that what i'm thinking here about the situation is correct whether or not the correctness ends up being what happens um it makes me feel less shitty <laughs> um, I don't know if anybody else is like that. Um, yeah. I yeah. think, um, yeah, the idea of like a kid having an accident and like, no big deal, like it's totally fine is a good way of like, there's no shame here. It's just something that happens. And I think that like what the person is saying with, as long as they're not showing signs of distress with doing any cleanup on their own, as far as like, wiping and that sort of thing like that helps build that skill of knowing what happens and like modeling there's no shame in this like whatsoever it so if they're developmentally ready to be taking those steps I think that's appropriate and like if there are signs of distress providing that co-regulation providing the support needed for whatever developmental stage they're at um, but if they're developmentally ready to clean up and like help take care of that aspect of things. I, I don't see a problem with that. Um, so that's <laughs> my two cents there. Wonderful. Well, we're closing in on the hour. So I'm going to go ahead and do our last question. Um, Michael and Alexandra on the Facebook Live, if you have any of the comments that you want to reply to uh, feel free to let me know before we close out, or obviously you could type in some answers as well if you would like. Um, so the last question is just for each person to share a closing thought from the discussion, maybe an action item, something you want the people who are viewing this to take with them when they go do toilet training. So do, do any of you want to go first or do you want me to go first again? Good. All right. So my closing thought would be kind of similar to what I opened with, but just really, if you're supervising people or you're conducting toilet training programs yourself to really reflect on everything that was discussed here tonight and think about how you are creating your plans to be supportive of your learner, that they're developmentally appropriate and that you're training your supervisees, not only to go beyond the, the minimum research that exists, but to really critically analyze that research and really critically analyze what they're doing, why they're doing it, how it's um, client-centered as Alexandra was talking about and how it's uh, make sure that it doesn't focus around shame. Um, and then from like a separate, just like as a human thing, I was thinking it would, how amazing would it be if anyone that's watching this does have interactions with daycares or schools, whether you're a teacher or a parent to be an advocate and ally as well. So if you're in a situation where there are policies requiring underwear and not diapers and that seem to put shame around toileting, uh, try to speak up and start pointing those things out to people and see what actions you can take in like the broader scale as well, not just around your clients or your own children. Alexander um, or Michael? Yeah, I think my final thoughts are just really hammered down that like bathroom type of thing should not be carrying any sort of shame they shouldn't like 
and in our discussions online, like these conversations around toileting can get heated or any of these topics. And you never know who you're talking with has that type of struggle just because you see them talking online doesn't mean um, like people say something about somebody having an accident at work and how, how horrible that would be. And I'm like, um, you don't know who you're talking to, stop. Um, kind of thing. So just some humility around it and stop being shaming about it. Um, just everybody uses the bathroom. It's fine. And be a little more <laughs> breathe. It's fine. It'll get figured out. Like you don't have to be stressed and follow some like predetermined arbitrary timeline. Well, and neither should anybody. <laughs> Thanks, Alexandra. Michael? Um, mainly just goodness, for goodness sakes, get caught up to this decade. Please, please stop using stuff. It's 40 or 50 years out of date, or even 10 years out of date. Things have changed so much. We understand so much now. We, um, we have ways to, we have so much support now that, that's available just in the autistic community that nobody's taking advantage of. You know, people, I'm not the only one who, who has this incredible bread to experience and, and I'm perfectly willing to give all my services for free if I need to. It's not, we're here, we're here to help. And we're here to help you get the, the, the best results and the, the happiest kid you can. Um, why aren't you? Why, why is it still like this? <laughs> thank Agreed. you, Michael. Yes, thank you. And I have learned so much from both of you tonight and um, over the time that I've known you. And I, I'm looking forward to continuing our difficult discussions. We have these planned every third Tuesday of the month at the same time, 7 p.m., different topics each time. Sometimes Alexandra and Michael might be participating. Sometimes it might be different people. Uh, but I appreciate both of you coming on tonight and sharing your thoughts with all of us and giving us things to think about and take action on to do better. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having us.